number 526 for our first hymn, 526. Shall we stand as we sing? Proverbs 19, if you will. Proverbs 19. Visit another 
uh, or revisit one of the categories we mentioned a week or two ago, and that is some things are better than others, and that is in verse 1 and verse 22. The poor, the poor who walks in integrity is better than a perverse-mouthed person. And then verse 22, the desire of a man is kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. Uh, verse 3 and 19 are paired uh, in topic as well. The topic is anger. And it's interesting that often we are our own worst enemy. <laughs> the foolishness of man perverts his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. That's old King James, of course. He rages against God. He blames God for his troubles, but his own sin are what caused his trouble, his foolishness. So there's your, you don't need a psychiatrist to tell you that <laughs> you caused your own problem. Um, there's an interesting thing. I, I think I will bring it out in verse 3. If you have a um, New American Standard 2020 version, um, excuse me a minute while I get to the right page. Folly of man subverts his way is the uh, legacy standard version. But the New American Standard 2020 uses the folly of a person. So there, there was and is this movement of gender, political correctness even uh, found in our Bible. I'm not saying that that's what the NAS people were doing, but it's curious that all the other versions stick with the word man, and the word is Adam, uh, the Hebrew word there. So it's just something to uh, be aware of. That's something, um, if, you, if you use the New American Standard, the older one is still retains man. What I think is important to look for in your version is, is consistency of translations of certain words. I think that's a big help in uh, scripture memorization and scripture uh, connection. Uh, you connect this word with another passage, and that's so important in, in your understanding of the Bible. And here I think uh, the legacy standard, which is newish, but it's been around a few years, I think. You won't have any trouble getting used to it if you're used to the New American Standard. It's uh, very close to that with some, but I think some, significant improvements. One of them is that they spell out the word Yahweh instead of just using capital L-O-R-D. But I did, did want to point out that other difference because it falls within the verse uh, that we have. And that is the translation of the word Adam. And, uh, in my humble opinion, it should be man. So uh, that, there's the witness we have here of uh, to the courtroom setting, witnesses and uh, justice. This would probably be one of the main themes of this chapter, verse 5, verse 9, verse 12, uh, verse 28, uh, and 29. I'll refer to that. And then 
a couple of verses about sloth. We often, you know, we need to we need to be reminded not to be lazy, don't we? That's uh, very easy uh, to fall into, especially in days of prosperity. It's very easy to be uh, slothful, especially uh, regarding the, the things of God when we have so much uh, by way of uh, Bible teaching, preaching available to us. We can become fat and lazy in our walks if we're not careful. Verse 27, uh, I like because it echoes back to chapter 1, verses 10 and 15. He reminds us that this is written as a father to a son. It is a father writing to a son or sons. They were royal family, uh, Solomon's sons, of course. He's very anxious over the son. You can hear it, (laughs) I can, uh, imagine it anyway, in his voice, the earnestness. My son, listen. In this case, stop listening to uh, those who cause you to err from the ways of of knowledge. So, uh, chapter 19 Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked in lips and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps sins. I'm reading uh, Legacy Standard, by the way. The folly of man subverts his way, but his heart rages against Yahweh. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many will seek the favor of a noble man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends distance themselves from him? He pursues them with words, but they are no more. He who acquires a heart of wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps discernment will find good. Here's another good example that I think the legacy is is doing, uh, trying to do. And I shouldn't make all these (laughs) opinions because I haven't been reading it that long. But these things jump out at me because I read the old King James Version and compare it to the others. But here they say, he who acquires a heart. And the word heart is the correct word. The old King James says, he who acquires wisdom. And you notice, uh, I think in your New American, probably says a heart of wisdom, but the words of wisdom are in parentheses. They're added. So, so what it's saying is that the unwise do not have a heart. <laughs> Acquire a heart. Explains a lot of what's going on in the world, doesn't it? False witness will not go unpunished. He who breathes out lies will perish. So many verses about our tongues, right? Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. A man's insight makes him slow to anger, and it is his honor to overlook a transgression. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant 
dripping. Here's an unhappy man. A son who brings calamity. That's all at once it happens. But then he's got this ongoing, uh, continual uh, dripping going on. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a wife who has insight is from Yahweh. Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and a slack-handed soul will suffer hunger. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who despises his way will die. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to Yahweh, and he will repay him for his bountiful deed. Discipline your son while there is hope. Do not direct your soul to put him to death. Uh, Another proverb says, he who doesn't discipline his son hates his son. A man of great wrath will bear the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Listen to counsel and receive discipline, that you may be wise in the end of your days. Many thoughts are in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. What is desirable in a man is his loving kindness. And better is a poor man than a man of falsehood. The fear of Yahweh leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, not visited by evil. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Strike a scoffer, and the simple may become prudent, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will understand knowledge. For the wise man, a word is enough. He doesn't need to be smitten. He who assaults his father and causes his mother to flee is a son who brings shame and humiliation. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. A vile witness scoffs at justice, and the mouth of the wicked swallows up iniquity. Judgments are established for scoffers. The word is rods, by the way are established for scoffers and beatings for the back of fools. So if you would turn now with me to hymn number 543 before John comes to bring the word. Number 543. Shall we stand please?
Back when I was a young man, the charismatic movement had just begun making inroads into uh, my section of the church. Uh, I was a Southern Baptist, and we began to notice a little bit of difference amongst the young people at least and uh, how they went about wanting to worship the Lord. One of the characteristics that kind of caught my attention most was that there was that sense among at least some of the charismatics that life was just a, a constant source of joy. There should always be a smile on your face. Everything was good. You might not see it, but God was at work, and therefore we ought to be able to rejoice in all things. And of course, you know, if you study Scripture, then you recognize that there there is some truth there, but the, um, the excessive interest in the outward appearance was one of those things that, again, just kind of caught me off off guard and trying to think through, you know, had they figured out something that I should have known. As the years have worn on, it has become easier and easier for me to see why it is that we as Christians are said to be followers of a man who is called man of sorrows. There is sorrow in life. There is no escaping that. And it is something that we simply learn to accept and deal with as the people of God. And it does make a difference, that faith in God, that helps us to be able to contend in an almost constant battle sometimes against those things that would cause us to be depressed, despondent, discouraged. Again, those, those are part of the Christian life, and we... We recognize that, and having recognized that, we seek out those scriptures that help us to be able to deal with situations like that. I want to look this afternoon at at least the first half. I was warned about any sermons over 20 or 30 minutes, so uh, I want to look at Psalm 37, uh, the first 20 verses of that. You'll notice from the heading there that this is a psalm of David. Uh, you, you remember David's life. David was one who, in his young manhood, after having been anointed king of Israel, went on the run for seven years from Saul, who was, who was seeking his life. It's not an easy life that he had then. If you'll read, and this is one of the things that only with that, I would guess, the last five to ten years I've taken real note of, is so many of David's psalms, Speak of the enemies that surround him, friends that have betrayed him, uh, the, the hidden face of God. He is a man, in other words, who understood what uh, difficult circumstances could do to you. And, and yet he was able to sing of the praise of God nonetheless. And because we live in a fallen world and because we ourselves are fallen people, it is well that we learn from men like David how to be able to confront those difficulties of life that can sometimes even shake the foundations of our faith. Well, he does that here in the 37th Psalm. Rather than reading it all at once, if you don't mind, I will just read a few verses at a time and make comment. And, and hear what, 
what David can teach us about finding that peace and joy that God does make available even when we're in the midst of it, even when our life seems to be falling apart and we are struggling to make sense of the world about us, particularly the wicked who are in it who seem to prosper, common theme that is to be found in the Psalms, it's good to listen to him and, and find that, that way that we can continue to move forward in a faith that is growing. <clears throat> we begin with the first two verses of Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Let us begin our understanding of this passage by turning to the Lord and asking for his grace. Our Father, we... We would like to think of the Christian life as one where we have mastered that confidence in you that just eliminates all struggle, all fighting against our own sin, that enables us to to worship, to praise, to adore you in every moment of life because we see you at work behind the scenes. It it would be nice to have that kind of life, but we we recognize our, our own frailty of heart and mind and ask that you would guide us this afternoon to, to, to hear some things that may give us pause as we think about dealing with those struggles of our own life and doing so in such a fashion that we end up where David always did. And that was with the ability to praise you as the one who held him steady all along. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't fret over, don't envy the wicked. Well, that's nice. You you do know that the wicked oftentimes have some good things. They have a good life. It seems that they are growing, they are prosperous, they are popular. And sometimes we we look at that stuff and say to ourselves, you know, it would be easy to live life if life were like that for us. In Scripture... We learn to see that the unfairness that is inflicted by the wicked man on God's people is something that is always under God's control. And again, we say that. We say it's because it's scriptural. We know it to be true, but it's hard to see. God is in control. We, we need to, to remember that because sometimes in that envious spirit, we say to ourselves, God, why can't you give me that life? I could do a lot better with it. If I had their money, if I had their position, their power, I could handle it a lot better. Well, all I can say to that, and one that i grown more and more confident of over the years, is that if I could have handled it better, God probably would have given it to me. Uh, But we need to be careful in being envious because, after all, what is it that they have? Whatever it is that they have and enjoy in life, it is here today and gone tomorrow. It is not something that is enduring. We shouldn't envy them any more than we envy a cow that is eating all it wants. It's growing fatter and fatter. For what reason? Because he's about to be slaughtered. He's about to have his life brought to an end because that's what that fatness is for. 
don't, don't weary yourself by thinking of the success of wicked men because the judgment that is coming, sometimes it's that final judgment. Sometimes it happens in this world while we're standing there watching it. But along the way, somewhere, God's judgment will reveal them not only to be wicked, but very foolish and thoughtless kind of people that should never have been envied in the first place. We need to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and not circumstances to bring about that sustaining power that you need for troubling days. Circumstances change. God doesn't. The third through the sixth verses. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rather than focusing on their evil, what does David say we ought to do? We ought to focus on those good things that we can do. We can tell ourselves, if only I had that, if only I were there, then I could do so much more. God has given you what you need for your life, not for somebody else's life. God has given you what you need for your life. Trust that he has given you enough to do what you should. Love others. And yes, that means even your enemies. Because you know what? If you do that, you will never regret it. Following God's commands, you will always be able to look back and see even if somebody has taken advantage of you, if you've shown that love of God to them, you can rest at night and say, I've done what my Lord asked me to. And there is a sense of satisfaction that comes with that. Pause often throughout the day to consider the Lord and his goodness and find delight in him and in those things that he has given. For the delight is there for you. When you see that beautiful sunset or those gorgeous trees as you're traveling along the road at this time of year, don't just say, wow, that's really pretty, and then go thoughtlessly about your business. Stop and realize, who is it that put the color in the trees? Who is it that gave us that marvelous sunrise or sunset? And let your mind wander to the beauty of God, for he is the one you are going to spend eternity with. And if you think the color of those trees is gorgeous, just wait till you see the radiant face of your Lord when you meet him after death. Wicked men delight, but they delight in carnal objects. We shouldn't, we shouldn't fret because God gives them a lot of the things that they want. So what? They don't have what you have. They don't have that contentment that comes from knowing the Lord like you do. Remember, God has given us the best thing ever. He's given us himself. You can ask no more than that. No more than that for a life full of joy. So don't let the world set the standards for what you think a good life is all about. Don't let the world do that to you. You will fail to be happy anytime, anywhere. Rather, commit yourself to following after the Lord. The wicked man may seem to have things better for a while, but that comes to an end far too quickly for any of them. In the final tribunal, 
your faithfulness to God, your faith in Christ will be seen not just by God, but by all the world that is gathered together. They will see your faith was the right way to go. They will see your loving kindness was the right way to live out one's life and not simply in seeking after the things of this world. So, verses 3 through 6, trust in the Lord. He will sustain you. Then David goes on in verses 7 through 11 to say, rest in the Lord. Yes, I know, they're very similar in in meaning, but but that rest that God gives our soul, to, to be able to cease struggling, to prove yourself to an unbelieving world, to show everybody how smart you are or how rich you are or whatever it is, there's no rest in that because no matter how much you know, no matter how much you have, you're always going to want more. That's, that's the state of the unbeliever. They're never satisfied, but we can rest in the Lord. We can rest in the Lord because His good plan for the world and His people is unfolding just as it should. Again, you ever pick up the paper, look at it, and say, ah, oh, could we go back and redo some of these guys that are in Congress, have their election again. Just We need to get rid of them. I can't wait two years for the next set of elections. You ever feel that way? And it can be people that we elect to office. It could be our boss. We just look at the wrongs that are being done and say to ourselves, I could fix that. I could take care of that if we could just stop and redo it. I don't want to redo anything. I really don't. I look at what's going on in our world today and still say, you know what? If God is really in control as we are told in Scripture that He is, do I want to go back and undo something that He's done? I don't think so. Our Lord does have that perfect plan, not only for the world as a whole, but for our lives as individuals. He has guided you step by step along the way so that you are where he has planned for you to be right here and right now. We ought to be able to to rest in that kind of knowledge. And thus, rather than hurrying God's justice along so that it, well, so that it fits our tastes, our desires, be patient. Let God work things out in the knowledge that he has the perfect plan and is making it to unfold as he desires. Therefore, we, because we have learned patience in waiting upon God, we've also discovered that anger comes a little less quickly to us. Anger should be avoided because about the only thing that it does is lead righteous people to unrighteous actions. That, that's just not a, a good course to take. That's, that's not a good, good way to, to live out our lives because ultimately, who are we angry at? Are we angry at the guy in the office who got the job that we were trying for? Are we angry at the guy who's driving the new car that we had been saving to get and yet we just never seemed to be able to get there? Are we angry at them or are we angry at God because he hasn't allowed us to prosper as we think we deserve? Prosper because we've worked hard for the things that we have and just can't manage to get what we want. We need to be careful about that anger that leads us to direct our 
dissatisfaction with life at, at the one who doesn't deserve to be thought unsatisfying. We, we direct it towards God ultimately. And besides that, why would we want to ex- exchange short-term gain for what we have, an eternal inheritance? Uh, I, I, I know I've heard of cases, uh, one of them close to home, where a man had set up at his death uh, for his inheritance to pass on to certain family members. Well, somebody with a good lawyer undid everything that he had planned and gained it all for themselves, and children were left to be on their own. Now, that's, that's just not right. That's just not fair. An inheritance, even of a guy who is smart, may not do what he wanted it to do. God's inheritance? Who's going to take something away from God? Who's going to take away that treasure that we have that is stored for us in heaven? Certainly no thief on earth, no rust is going to despoil it while it is kept where God says it ought to be. Let them enjoy their day in the sun. Let them enjoy their moment of fame while they are here on earth, for it is going to be swept away in an instant. Even in this life, those whose hope is in God have a share in those things that bring true enjoyment. I I hope, though I have just said we all suffer sorrow, that's part of living in this world, but I surely hope that you find joy in some of the things that you have in life, some of the accomplishments you've had, some of the blessings that God sent that you simply didn't deserve at all. I hope that you find joy in such things, but... But remember, the best of all is still God. There's also the pleasure of friends who are always by your side. You know those people. They're, they seem as I get older to get to be fewer and fewer, simply because there are fewer of us around. But nevertheless, they're always there. Whenever you need a shoulder to cry on or an arm up, they are there. But more importantly, we have the Lord who walks with us day in and day, day out. There is, there is that promise that he has given to us when our Lord himself, while he was here on earth, spoke. And he says, I, I will never abandon you. You know, that, those, were the, those were words that were hard for me to preach at Easter season sometimes. Our Lord crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why he died like that? It is so that we don't have to. God never, ever, for a moment, abandons any of his children. He is there to provide exactly what is needed for the moment. Even in the midst of poverty and turmoil, we find not just peace, like the world does, we find a peace that passes understanding because we serve a God who knows how to give liberally, abundantly. And then, (coughs) thirdly there, The wicked, no doubt, have a truly menacing appearance. I hope you don't get me wrong. God is in control, so don't worry about the the mean guys who are running the country or running the city or running your workplace. I, I don't mean that. They can make threats that are unsettling. They can make threats that truly are dangerous. There is no doubt about that. Look look there at that 12th and 14th verse. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth, gnashes at him with his teeth. 
The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Yeah, they're they're dangerous people. They can hurt you. They can hurt your friends and your family members. I, I, I don't mean to suggest by the idea that God is in control that you never have to fear a wicked man hurting you. That's simply not the case. Sometimes it seems that the wicked can carry the world with their lies and turn everyone against us. Do you, do you ever feel kind of like a loner as a Christian anymore? Like there's fewer and fewer that you look at and you say, oh, okay. Okay, I, I think these these will be true to God to the end. And you, you find yourself disappointed sometimes to the point that you think to yourself, I, I don't know, are there any who are left that you can trust all the time? Well, it may seem, again, that the, the, the world can turn everyone against us, but when confronted with their craftiness, uh, while it may seem they can pull off anything, they can't. Not, not really. They can't. Their threat to upset God's plan for our future in this world. Do you notice how God responds? This, this is the, the second of two psalms that I can remember that this comes up. The Lord laughs at these men, for he says, sees that their day is coming. We think sometimes God is kind of sitting on the edge of his throne and he's kind of biting his nails and going, boy, I, I hope this, this works out because I, I had it planned well. And he's just kind of sitting there worried. Our God looks at the enemy, no matter how many he may add to his numbers, and he laughs at the very idea that they are going to upset his plan. They, they can't. Because he's God. He literally has all power. There is nothing that he cannot accomplish. No foe he cannot defeat. Their, their threat may be real sometimes, but... While the wicked man may not believe the day is coming, while sometimes we wonder if the day is coming, it is. And those wicked men men will be judged for their sins, and then they will be sent off into a place that we never have to worry about them again. God will turn their own evil plans that seem to work for them against them so that they can fight no more. Those 15th through 17th verses... The sword will enter their own heart, that, that sword that they have aimed at, the, at the, the, the needy, the righteous. Their sword will enter their own heart. Their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Uh, their own plans meant to harm us will ultimately bring about their own demise. Sin has within itself the seeds of destruction that finally bring it to an end, and that's because we have a moral God who has created a moral universe, and no more than we can break the laws of physics that say gravity makes me fall when I stumble, can you defy God and get away unscathed. Judgment Day is coming. Again, sometimes we see it in this world, always. We know that it will occur at the end of time. God will, uh, that God will bring about an end to their glory. It, it, they, they do have a glory about it, about themselves. Don't, uh, don't forget that. 
Their, their wealth, their power, their popularity, those things, it does make them look invincible sometimes, but you can't beat God. Not in the end. He brings about their ends so that they vanish like smoke and they do it in a moment and then they're forgotten. I don't have my glasses on, but I, I, I've seen a few of you. You're old enough to remember the Soviet Union. Soviet Union. Oh, we were always talking about how, well, first of all, we were going to uh, wave off their nuclear attacks because we were hiding under our desks and there was nothing to worry about under there. But there, there was always, you know, how can they be defeated? It doesn't seem to matter what we do. And how long did it take between the time that they were the Soviet Union and then the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union fell apart? I mean, was that, those of you old enough to remember that, didn't that seem like an astounding thing to you? It, you just, you went, wow. I never would have expected that it was going to happen that way, but God can do that. Even better one is, do you remember Babylon in the Old Testament? Babylon the Great. Babylon the head of gold of that great statue of the nations. Babylon was powerful, mighty, wealthy. One day, one night, they're in there having a party. Remember the handwriting on the wall? They were having a party. The next morning they woke up and there was no Babylon anymore. Literally, overnight, it was gone. God can do that. Just because he doesn't do it when you want him to, doesn't mean he can't. We look at that, we take comfort in the knowledge that God will bring them to a righteous end. The righteous, on the other hand, well, they have little perhaps by comparison but in contrast with the wicked, we find contentment with the things that we have. I didn't steal from anybody to get what I have. Boy, if I, if I could steal and get away with it, I would do that. No, that, that's not the way that we think. We stop, we see what God wants us to do, and that's what we do. And even though it leads to less, perhaps, than what the world has, we go to bed at night comfortable because... We've pleased our Lord. We've done what he has asked us to do. There is no measure of guilt because we had to climb over the next guy to get the position at work we wanted. We didn't have to lie about him. We didn't have to bring his character into question. We just did our work, and one day they called us into the office, and they said, okay, the job is yours because you're doing a good job. And we go, hey, that's cool. I don't have to worry about the idea that I've hurt somebody to get what I Desire, The things that we enjoy are not protected by anything so flimsy as wealth or armies. The Lord upholds the righteous. He knows our future. He knows what tomorrow holds. Do I want to know what tomorrow holds? A lot of times my answer to that would be no, I, I would just soon not. I'm content with what's, you know, the evil that today Jesus talks about. That's good enough. Tomorrow will have its own. I'm, I'm good with knowing today what I know today. But even if I did know, would it make any difference? No, because I am just as certain without knowing, without knowing the future, I know the God who has ordained the future. And I know he's good. He's righteous. He's just. And he loves me. 
That's, that is enough. We don't have to fear the uncertainties of stock markets and peace processes that might or might not make our life better. Our greatest treasures are not locked up in anything so unstable as a bank vault. They are hidden for us in the heavenly realm. Is this life of perpetual, uninterrupted joy that we have? And yes, joy is always a possibility. But is it untouched by sorrow and struggle? I want to close with two passages, and I'm just going to read them real quickly. Two passages that kind of give a shape to the kind of life that we're talking about here so that you understand that it's not all sorrow and it's not all joy. And see how those kind of mesh together for the Christian. The first of them is to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. I would turn there quickly, but I don't have the dexterity. Uh, 2 Corinthians, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. But we have this treasure, and just so you'll know, the treasure is the light of Christ, his salvation, his grace that is in our life. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not for ourselves. The good things we enjoy, they come from him and not because of our hard work. We are, now listen, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now there you go. That's the Christian life that David is talking about. He suffered. He was persecuted. He knew what it was like to be on the run, his life in his hands, and yet... David made it through to the end of his life. And what is the title that is given to him? He was a man after the Lord's own heart. Despite the murder, despite the adultery, he was a man after God's own heart. Now, there's the Christian life for you. It is not an easy life, but boy, is it a rewarding life. And what other one would we choose for ourselves than what God has given to us? And then finally, one from the Old Testament. It is one that I, I use often, probably because I think about it often. Habakkuk was given a message. He, he comes to the Lord and he says, God, do you not realize how corrupt the people of this country are? And God said, yes, I do. That's why I'm sending Babylon to, to wipe them out. And then Habakkuk stops and thinks, and he says, "Um, okay, wait a minute. That wasn't the response I expected. How can you use the ones who are more unrighteous than us to bring about such a thing for your people? So he was conflicted. God gave him the answer that he was asking for, and it wasn't the one Habakkuk wanted, which is one of the reasons I'm I'm not all that anxious to know what tomorrow holds. I'll see it when I get there. Because God's answers are sometimes, well, not exactly what we would expect. All right. So he's in a situation, and it is very clear, not only from the the opening of the book, but throughout, 
that God is going to judge the people Israel. And in fact, the nation will be destroyed as a nation. They will no longer exist. How, how would you like to hear that message about our country? I know the direction that it's going, and it looks terrible, and that may be what comes. But how would you like to hear from God himself, your country will not make it through the next five years? I don't know that it was exactly five years for Habakkuk, but it wasn't very long. How would you like to know going into it that that is what was going to happen and that there was no turning back, no repentance would make any difference? Here's how Habakkuk ends it. Beginning in the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, I heard, I heard all this about judgment coming. I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound, at the sound my lips quivered Decay entered my bones, and in my place I trembled, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Now, that pretty well captures my view of what life would be like if I knew judgment was coming on us very soon. But it is the next part that we need to take to heart. Though the fig tree... Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the field and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. That is the faith I want. That is the faith David had. Whatever it may look like out in front of us, people know this. God still loves his people. He still says the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And the result ought to be for us like it was for Habakkuk. I don't care if nothing good happens. I will exult in my God, the God of my salvation. That is where we are to find our joy. Quit looking for it in circumstances. Quit looking for it in the promises of the president or the mayor. Quit looking for it in your bank accounts. It is to be found in God and God alone. And when you have found that, then even the most difficult of circumstances, no matter how long it goes on, you will find you can look at the end of the day and say, I do exult in my God the God of my salvation, for he has promised great things for me. Let us bow in prayer. Our God, how good you are to us, and sometimes we don't even recognize it. We read the papers, we hear what people say, our heart tends towards the darkness, and we we wonder, what is God doing? How is he going to make this all go away? Our response to that is, We don't know, but what we do know is that there will always, even in the midst of distress and sorrow, there is always, as it was with Habakkuk, cause to exult in the God of our salvation. You have been gracious to us beyond anything we deserve, anything, in fact, even that we can imagine. And for that, Father, we give thanks and pray 
Pray that our hearts will be made stable by focusing our hearts and our minds upon Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you, John, for your labors in the Word for us today. Let's close our time with hymn number 519. 519. Shall we stand as we sing?